Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. You name it, they're coming on. Pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at, at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he has been enjoying much lately with the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you liked everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you love this Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air. Hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hi. So got a bit of old business to follow up on. Last episode, we talked to Nick Sine, the amazing minor league hit-by-pitch machine. We asked listeners for submissions for a nickname for Nick, because as far as we know, he doesn't have one, and a player like this just deserves to have one. So I thought I'd read a few good submissions we got from listeners. So Orud's Helmet on Twitter suggests Nick the Brick. Pete suggests Plunk. Chris says Sine in the way. I kind of like that. Dirk says Beans. Dan says Nicholas Impervious. Daniel says the Marcellus Magnet. We should have gotten that one probably. Yeah, that's good. That's pretty good. That is a pretty good one. Yeah. And I was thinking of human hit by pitch, the human hit by pitch. That's what I said when I tweeted it. And we noticed that Nick Sine had actually retweeted someone tweeting at him an image of Shawn Michaels with Nick Sine's head on Shawn Michaels' body with just the text HBP. So that's one option also. But there's some good ones in there. I like yeah. Marcellus Magnet. I like some of the shorter ones. So, you know, those are good ones. If Nick, if you're listening, choose your favorite. Let us know which one you're officially going with. I actually got a good one uh, from JP Hornstra, a friend of the pod, uh, uh-huh. last night. He suggested the Buffalo Bruiser, which oh, I thought okay. I thought it was it, not only did it make him look or sound bigger than he is, but he's the bruisee. So <laughs> right. he, it's he like went back Buffalo and forth. Bruised. The Buffalo yeah. Bruise. Yeah. Yeah. Buffalo Bruise. I like that. The Marcellus Magnet. Who was the Marcellus Magnet? (laughs) Marcellus Magnet. That one was submitted by Daniel. Okay. So, yeah. I think we might, maybe we should put the Marcellus Magnet and the Buffalo Brews on uh, head to head in a poll and Uh and let it. All right. Well, I say this with a great deal of trepidation in the year of our Lord 2017, but let (laughs) democracy take its course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, democracy as represented by twitter even better even more reliable yeah okay sure do it i don't know that nick will be bound by (laughs) whatever the people decide but i'd be interested in seeing the results i'll talk him into it well (laughs) okay (laughs) all right so later in this episode we're going to talk to travis sachik returning guest on the podcast fangraphs writer we have a new home run record in major league baseball for a single season so we're going to talk to travis about the implications of that and 
how it affects the way teams are planning and can they assume that baseball will continue to be a high home run game given that it wasn't just a few years ago and what are the things that teams have to consider because of this new home run happy era we're in so we'll get to that shortly but we wanted to do a, a sort of preview or sizzle reel for the rest of September because as our friend and former podcast guest Grant Brisby pointed out in a Wednesday posted SB Nation, he called it the dullest September of baseball in recent memory. And it is in a certain sense, right? We Most of the division races are decided at this point. We're not going to get the crazy five or seven team free for all down to the wire in the AL wildcard race that it looked like we might have for a while. But there's still some things to like here, still some things to pay attention to. I'm very much in postseason mode at this point, but we still got a couple of weeks of baseball left. And before we know it, we'll be without any baseball at all. So we should savor September. So we've picked out some things that we are really looking forward to in the rest of the regular season. I don't know that it was ever likely that that AL wildcard race was going to produce the just total chaos that it looked like for a while. Just because, I mean, there was... All it took was one or two teams just sort of not playing like crap for a week or two. And here we go. The the Twins and Angels have sort of separated themselves. Um, But that said, that's a a fun little two-way playoff race right now. I think there are fun... You know, fun narrative or you know, entertainment related uh, reasons to to root for both of those teams. So I think that, mm-hmm. that that'll be fun to watch. Yeah. So in the pennant race department, what do we have here? We have, of course, the Twins and Angels who are separated by a game from each other as we speak. That is interesting. I think either one is something that non-fans of either of those teams could be happy about. I think that they would make it. I mean, certainly it's unexpected to see the Twins in this position, somewhat unexpected to see the Angels in this position, especially if you had told us that Mike Trout would miss a chunk of the season, Garrett Richards would miss almost all of the season, and they would still somehow be here. And I think seeing Trout in the playoffs again would be fun, and seeing the Twins and Sano and Buxton and all the good young guys they have would also be exciting. So either way, I'm kind of happy that one of these teams is going to make it, but that's something to watch down the stretch. It's not like these teams have a rivalry or even head-to-head matchups or anything, but still, that's something. But I think probably we're both more fascinated by the Brewers. Yeah, there's still a certain extent to which I'm not really sure how they're doing this, uh, but mm-hmm. I find them fascinating. I find the team that they've almost inexplicably uh, almost caught, uh, the Rockies, very interesting. Yes. I kind of want to see both of those teams in the playoffs. So like, if I'm rooting for anything, I'm rooting for the Brewers to catch the Cubs and the Rockies right. to sort of hold off the... Also still in play. Yeah, which is yeah. still possible. I mean, if, if we say that's possible and we got to open up, then it really is still like a four or five way race in the, the AL wildcard because the gap there is three and a half games right now as we record. Although the Brewers and the Cubs have a head-to-head series Ah, this weekend, which will be intriguing. So if the Brewers somehow swept that one or even just take the series, they still have a realistic chance. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Yeah. So anyway, that would be be fun even leaving alone the hilarious 
post-mortem, gravely serious, a whole winter long hand wringing about how the Cubs went from winning the World Series to missing the playoffs. Um, Right. Mm-hmm. So I think what what characterizes them the best is that uh, Zach Davies was at one point leading the National League in wins. Um, yeah. And I knew that Zach Davies was not Kyle Davies before this season started, <laughs> but uh-huh. I will not divulge exactly when I made that <laughs> distinction. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's. I mean, that's just the the kind of season that that they're they've been having, and they've they're managing to. And you know, Ryan Braun's playing really well. Eric Thames isn't as hot as as he was uh, early no. in the year, but he's <laughs> not nearly. No, um, you know, he's still well worth his the three year contract that seemed to shock everybody, uh, including him, before the season started. So, you know, that's yeah. it's April alone basically was worth it. Yeah, he, yeah, he hasn't done a whole lot since then. But yes, most of all, it's, you know, it's new blood. It's players, a lot of players we haven't seen, a team that we haven't seen in the playoffs since 2011. Yeah, no, I I think they've been one of the best stories of the season, regardless of whether they end up in the playoffs. But if they do, that would be exciting. The Rockies blowing this thing would not, well, in a way it would be exciting, except that I'd I'd like to see the Rockies in the playoffs. So that's probably at the top of the list for us, the Brewers, what happens with them. Then, of course, you have the Red Sox-Yankees race in the East. They're separated by less than the Cubs and the Brewers are in the Central. And so that really matters. Obviously, there's a lot of incentive to win the division instead of having to be in the play-in game. So I will be monitoring that. And, you know, then there's some seeding stuff still to be decided, whether Astros or Indians end up with the best record in the league yeah. or Indians Dodgers for the best record in baseball, that sort of thing. Not only is it getting out of the wild card game, and even I think whoever comes out of the East will be clearly the better team, uh, you know, over the Twins or the Angels. But still, that's, you don't ever want to, Pin your season down to one game, even if it's a game where you're favored at home. Um, mm-hmm. But they also get to avoid what at this point looks like Cleveland, who for my money, like it's it's unfathomable to me that I would think of a team other than the Dodgers as the best team in baseball uh, this year. But, you know, I think at this point, Cleveland's the scariest team out there. And if you win the division, yeah. you avoid them in the first round. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that's the playoff stuff that we're looking stuff forward to. Stuff with actual to. consequences. Right. That's it's the obvious stuff, and that's not nothing. There's mm-hmm. some stuff to be excited about there. We're not heading for a last day of the 2011 regular season yeah, we or don't anything know that. like that. But, well, I guess it's possible. But, yeah, so there's enough to, I think, keep your attention just there. But we wanted to get into maybe some less obvious attractions of the end of the regular season here, whether it is individual player accomplishments or teams that may not be in contention but are more fun than they used to be, or playoff teams that have some questions and uncertainties to resolve before the end of the season. So do you want to start? Apart from the obvious, you know, this is a, a situation where you can probably, if you're channel surfing every single night, you can probably pare this down, pair your watching down to, you know, maybe three or four teams at this point. But if one of those teams isn't playing or that game's out of reach, this is where the fun bad teams start to emerge. And there are yeah. a couple teams, the White Sox and Phillies in particular, have reached a status of being. Uh, fun bad over the the past couple mm-hmm. weeks because they've started bringing up a lot of the young talent that we've been hearing about for so long. Uh, the Phillies uh, 
you know, we're recording before they play the Dodgers on Wednesday night, but they've just taken uh, two in a row from the Dodgers behind Kershaw and Darvish. J.P. Crawford on Monday night made an incredible play at third base. Reese Hoskins is doing what he's doing. Jorge Alfaro has the potential to be one of the most fun catchers in baseball. The probability that he hits his absolute ceiling is probably pretty low, but insofar as he's flawed, he's flawed in ways that make him a lot of fun to watch. Um, and that's leaving aside that you know Aaron Nola is pitching better than ever, and he is like... He is the stone cold nuts. He is so much yeah. fun. And, you know, that said, he was not fun enough to warrant watching the Phillies just for him for most of the season. But now that <laughs> you've got Hoskins and Crawford now far up and, you know, Aaron Altair and Nick Williams are playing pretty well. You know, now there's the the, the whole team is bearable enough behind him that you can uh, make go out of your way to watch Nola starts. Um, and as for the White Sox, the guy that I'm really interested in is Carson Fulmer, who is sort of mm-hmm. like Alfaro in that he's an incredible athlete and his flaws only make him more interesting. Uh, he has one of the most violent deliver- deliveries that you'll see from a starting pitcher. Uh, he was an incredible college player. He was a top 10 overall pick and he's getting an extended run in the the rotation right now so and between him and lucas giolito you know the and yoan mancata you know we're leaving out that they just promoted the number one prospect in baseball right. you know that's a, a team that's worth watching so like this is the fun bad baseball team is probably not as fun as like the fun bad basketball team but it's still there's still something to be said for that mm-hmm. yeah So I would also mention just some of the guys who have been at the forefront of the home run heroics this season. Obviously, Giancarlo Stanton and his chase for 60-something. He is at 55 as we speak. That is pretty compelling. And I would also lump in Judge, who is hot again now. He's back to being early season first half Aaron Judge. And of course, you have Reese Hoskins and Matt Olson who are hitting home runs just about every day at this point. So just adding to their 2017 legacies, just seeing how sensational their seasons can look. And with Judge now, he is on the verge. I guess maybe he's already there, really. But he is close to having a top 10 rookie season of all time. As we speak, he ranks 11th among position players in rookie seasons, and that is not counting the home run that he hit on Wednesday. So he was just 0.3 Fangraphs wins above replacement outside of the top 10 for rookies. And of course, 2012, Mike Trout at the very top of that list. But then you have guys like Al Rosen, 1950 is within his reach, Ted Williams and Fred Lynn in 39 and 75, respectively, still within his reach. Albert Pujols, 2001. Corey Seager, actually, last year, is right there, too. And then you have Piazza, Dick Allen. So these are legendary rookie seasons, and Judge has really already put himself in that class. There are only a a couple pitchers still ahead of him. 1984, Dwight Gooden. 1911, Pete Alexander. 1935, Cy Blanton which sounds like a sarcastic way to refer to Joe Blanton, but it's not. He's a pitcher. And yeah, I mean, every home run he hits is vaulting him higher on this all-time rookie value leaderboard, and that's a fun one. I think I think Cy Blanton is not a real person, and you're trying to get back at me <laughs> for uh, the game we played last week by giving me somebody f- uh, like a, a minor character from the great American novel. 
Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> so Jud- he's real. The other thing about Judge is he's if uh, so the homer today would have brought him to forty five, right, on the season, mm-hmm. and that right. that puts him within four of Mark McGuire's rookie record. So that's yeah, it's not a it's not as big a lock as it might have seemed a couple months ago, but it's definitely within mm-hmm. striking distance with uh, about you know a little less than two weeks left in the season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up Matt Olson because he's sort of the midway point between Hoskins and Judge. And I uh-huh. feel like he I'm kind of surprised we haven't been getting the the dreaded no love for emails about him because <laughs> like yeah. his, uh, it, it, there's just out of nowhere. Yeah, right. Of course, it's all semi asterisk in the sense that it's coming in this crazy home run season, but still it's fun. And I have a few other statistical accomplishments I am hoping to see or looking forward to seeing. I thought we would be seeing a race to the wire in the will Mike Trout overtake everyone. And yeah. it looks like that's not going to happen. He's been slumping a little lately. And Altuve has been, been to, really good. Right. Yeah. Altuve judges hot again. There are too many guys for Trout to overtake at this point, although he's still come fairly close for someone who missed as much time as he did. So that's not one of the things we're going to see, but I am still looking forward to the Ichiro pinch hits Mm -hmm. chase. I wrote about this at the ringer this week. He is two behind 1995 John Vanderwall tying. I remember (laughs) you brought up John Vanderwall in that that story. I was like, yeah, like that was one of my I have very vivid memories as as an eight year old fan. It seemed like the first couple years the Rockies were in the league. They played the Phillies. 45 times a year. And I remember the announcers being terrified of John Vanderwall. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like they brought yeah. him in to pinch hit against Kurt Schilling in the fifth inning of a game, like, mm-hmm. you know, in like May or something. And they were like, wow, this is the, you know, John Vanderwall is the best pinch hitter in baseball. And I think it like yeah. made me think that there was such a thing as a, as like a great pinch hitter as opposed to a great right. hitter, like way longer <laughs> than I should have been uh, entertaining yeah. that notion. So that, well, that brought me back. Yeah, well, I mean, it did used to be more of a a full-time occupation Mm -hmm. than it is now. The pinch hitter, that used to be a role that at least a few guys would have from year to year. And that has largely gone away now because bullpens continue to expand. 14 relief pitchers. (laughs) Right. There is no room for the dedicated pinch hitter anymore. But Ichiro at 43, almost 44 now, has transitioned into that role and is that dedicated pitch hitter. And he has 26 pinch hits this year, which puts him two behind Vanderwaal's record. And I think it would just be wonderful if Ichiro were the all-time single-season hits record holder and also the single-season pitch hits record holder. I think that would just speak to his longevity and the way that he has hung on and is willing to do anything because he loves baseball and he doesn't want to go away and we don't want him to go away. So this is fun. He's been hitting so well for the last few months that it's kind of jeopardized his pursuit of this record because he's actually getting some starts now, but he is essentially the fourth outfielder on the team with the best outfielder yeah. baseball. So <laughs> it's, it's a weird role. I, I didn't but. notice this because I think in part because like it didn't occur to me that you would need other outfielders than Ozuna, Yelich, right. and Stanton. Yeah, you don't much. So Itro hasn't gotten a ton of playing time for that reason. But love that he is making this run at this record. I was hoping that Chris Davis would challenge his own record for looking strikeouts 
I wrote about this early in the season. Chris Davis has just become the Babe Ruth of striking out looking over the past few years. Doesn't look like he's going to get there because he missed a bunch of time. He's at 71 looking strikeouts right now with 10 games remaining as we speak. So he would need nine in those 10 games to break his own record set last year of 79 looking strikeouts. Probably not going to get there, but he made a valiant attempt to get there. No one else has gotten to these heights, I think. Jack Cust had 72 one one season, so he's going to pass that. But he's in rarefied Chris Tavis-only territory for striking out looking. So a couple others that I'm interested in. I think we might have mentioned this, the record for pitchers used by a team. The Mariners are sitting on... Did they not break that already? On, I thought they... They did not. No, they are sitting on 40 right now, which ties them with the 2014 Rangers for the most pitchers used. I guess that was that crazy injury right. year for the Literally Rangers. Literally right? everybody so, heard, yeah. Right, which has basically been the case for the Mariners this year too. So not that this is some sort of storied record and obviously teams and the league as a whole are using more pitchers now because of the aforementioned bullpen expansion. But I think they deserve to have this one. I think they have put the effort in. They've They've missed the players. They've lost the players to injury. They have made the requisite number of transactions. I think Jerry DePoto deserves to hold the record for most pitchers used in a season. So we just need one more new pitcher on the Mariners over these last 10 days or so. Uh, it could be a position player getting into a blowout. I wonder blowout. if it would have to be. It just Probably, like I don't, yeah, I don't know if they've used every single pitcher on their 40-man right now. Yeah, they're unlikely to call up anyone who hasn't been called up already, I would think. But I'm hoping they somehow get there because I I think it would be just for them to be at the top of this leaderboard. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, there is the Indian staff, which is going for best pitching staff of all time. And this is something that Jeff Sullivan noted at Fangrass. But if you go by Fangrass War, the Indians... Pitching staff is currently 0.3 wins above replacement behind the 1996 Braves for best pitching staff of all time by that measure. So it seems pretty likely that they're going to get there. They just have to be a, a little bit better than replacement level over these last couple of weeks to set that record. And that's pretty cool because you think about those Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz teams and they are right up there. And that is a big part of the reason why you just said that they are very scary and you would not want to play them in October. Yeah, I uh, dug something up. Corey Kluber is uh, on pace to strike out more than 11 batters per nine innings and uh, post an ERA plus of 180 uh, or over 180. And the Uh only two pitchers ever have uh, before him have uh, broken both of those uh, barriers while qualifying for the ERA title, and Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez had d- done it a com- or combined, I think nine times between 1995 and 2002. So that's the kind of season Kluber's having. Like that's, right. I mean, I, I keep bringing this up because it's just so staggering that like we think of Kluber. Oh, Kluber was already one of the five best pitchers in baseball. There's you just don't. I think this is a reason that guys like Kershaw and Trout get. Um, still get underrated uh, even though they are the consensus best at their positions. It's like we just, we categorize and we don't realize that there's so much movement within like the top five or top 10 players in baseball. And Kluber's been, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, he's been turn of this, maybe not turn of the century, Pedro good, but turn of the century, Randy Johnson good. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. 
And you could include, I guess, the Kluber sales Cy Young race if you want in this discussion of things to pay attention to in September. I, I think Kluber has passed sale yeah, now, I think probably. So too. But I, I mean, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a great conversation to have over the. <laughs> Uh, you you staking out your non predictions non awards, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know foxhole to to die in um, was right. it was really really smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's close enough that you know a couple dominant starts or a blowout or something could swing things potentially. So couple more. I have one very obscure one, which is Blue Jays reliever Carlos Ramirez. Who now, why would you think fairly, that's obscure? Uh, it's pretty obscure, I would say. <laughs> it's a fairly late season call up, but he has a zero ERA on the season across three levels, double AA, A, triple A and the majors over 47 and two thirds innings pitched. He has allowed two unearned runs, but I got this stat from Hans Van Sluten at Baseball Reference. I asked him to look up the pitchers with the most innings pitched in a season with a zero ERA. And there are only two guys ahead of Carlos Ramirez right now. There's Teddy Corbett, who did it in the 1892 Western League. That's not he baseball. Went, no, that's not baseball. He he made it 88 innings, but that's if you if you take it for granted that the Western League was classifying earned runs right, and also it's not baseball. So if we throw out him, then you just have Ramona Costa, who did this in 2008 over 54 and two thirds innings. And he did it in the Dominican Summer League, which is extremely low-level baseball. So Carlos Ramirez has now done it in 2017 in high levels of baseball, including the majors. Now he's thrown 10 scoreless innings in the majors, too. Those two unearned runs came in double A. So this is pretty impressive. I mean, it's you know kind of fluky, obviously, but he has actually pitched well. He has the peripherals to support it. He's sort of just a generic reliever, and generic relievers are really good now. But he's 26. He is a former outfielder who was converted a few years ago, and this has been a, a fun streak. So he's probably too late for him to catch Ramon Acosta, but he is extending his own record for players who have done this in a year that included major league service time. So kind of a fun accomplishment that I am hoping that he does not allow an earned run before the end of the season. And one last one, I guess, is just the questions that playoff teams have to resolve before the playoffs start, not whether they will be in the playoffs or not, but just how they will line up their rotation, their bullpen, their roster, that sort of thing. And Not really the last man on the roster, but significant decisions like, I guess, the Indians are figuring out what to do with Michael Brantley. Will he be back in time? And according to the latest update from the team that was tweeted by our recent guest, Jordan Bastian, he remains shut down from all running activity for another seven to 10 days. After that time, he will be reevaluated to determine his readiness for land-based running. As opposed to what? I, he can run on water, potentially. I don't know what that means. Maybe treadmill is not land, a, a bouncy castle. I don't know what this means, but they have to figure out if he's going to be playable. Obviously, Bryce Harper coming back. Is he going to be at full strength? David Price, I think, is is pretty interesting. We talked about whether he would make it back a, a few podcasts ago. He has made it back. He made it back for a two-inning perfect relief appearance. He was throwing his sinker 95. He struck out a couple of guys, didn't allow anyone on base. So the question will be, 
can he be a bullpen weapon? How far can he go in a relief outing? Will he pitch well enough that they'll be tempted to start him? So there are probably other questions like that around the league. Just guys who've had up and down seasons or are coming back from injury. Danny Salazar with Cleveland would maybe be another one whose status is sort of up in the air. So probably a few of those just getting the roster set and aligned in the way that teams want it. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of pitchers on playoff teams, Clayton Kershaw's streak of lowering his career ERA in every season of his career is still in some jeopardy. He started the season with a 2.37 career ERA. He had lowered it in eight consecutive years following his rookie season. He is now at 2.36 career. So he's lowered his career ERA by a hundredth of a point with a 2.26 ERA this season with probably a couple starts remaining. He could cement the ninth consecutive year or he could have a couple rough starts and blow it. And I wrote about this in March. I found that only 16 pitchers have ever lowered their career ERAs in any span of more than eight consecutive years. So he would be joining that group. And only two pitchers, Hal Brown and Justin Spire, have ever lowered their career ERAs in eight seasons following their rookie year. So he would tie Spire and be one year behind Brown, who did it in 10 consecutive years following his debut. I love the Kershaw streak because his rookie ERA was 4.26. So it's not like he had very far to fall. And yet somehow he has continued to lower that every single year. Another testament to his greatness. Yeah. Uh, so I was looking up the, the 1996 Braves because I was trying to figure out who their fourth starter was that year. Jason Schmidt was uh-huh. on that team. Oh, wow. Huh. Um, yeah. I guess pre-prime Jason Schmidt. Yeah, but, he, he yeah. somehow he made like five different starts or stops before he finally had yeah. that those like three good seasons and then was never heard from again. Yeah. Do you want to guess how many pitchers they used? <laughs> I would guess 22. 18. Wow. They used yeah. 42 players that whole season and the Mariners are up to 40 pitchers this year. Huh. Wow. All right. Well, times are different. The 90s were wild, man. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk about one way in which these times are different, all the homers and what that means for teams. We'll be back with Travis Sachik after a brief word from our sponsor. Allow me to bend your ear about this amazing hotel booking app, Hotel Tonight. Basically, Hotel Tonight teams up with great hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means there are always incredible deals available. And these aren't last resort places. They're cool, top-rated hotels you actually want to stay in. Not to mention, with a ton of awesome partner hotels in so many different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. Whether I want to spend the weekend away on a whim or book myself a staycation at a cool local place, Hotel Tonight is helping me be just a little more spontaneous, and I can use all the help I can get in that department. If you have a wedding or a bachelor party coming up, you're just getting away for the weekend, taking a longer trip, Going to see a sporting event and staying over after? Hotel Tonight is perfect for all occasions. You can actually even book in advance, so it's not just for last-minute getaways. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So see for yourself. Download the Hotel Tonight app now. So on Tuesday night, Alex Gordon, of all hitters, launched the 5,964th home run hit in Major League Baseball this season. Alex Gordon has only contributed eight home runs to that total. He is slugging in the low 300s, but nonetheless, someone had to be the one to hit that home run, and he was the one that is the most home runs ever hit 
in a Major League Baseball season. We are on pace for well over 6,000 at this point. This is, of course, the highest home run rate in history. We have talked about the reasons why and the trend toward high home run rates. But now there is an article out by Travis Sachik at Fangraphs who asks, I think, the compelling question about how teams should plan for the future in this record home run environment? Should they expect this to continue? And if so, how should they plan? And so we are bringing on Travis now to talk about the implications there. Hello, Travis. Hey, fellas. How are you? Good. So you made a nuclear submarine analogy. This is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about naval spending, (laughs) defense spending, and and ballistic (laughs) missile submarine production. And what is the role of mobile hidden nuclear deterrent in a world where our greatest threat is probably not from a state actor? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into all of that. Well, some of that. Yeah. I know, Michael, you're an airplane person. I'm a submarine person. So, Travis, you want to... All right. We're all submarine people. Travis, you want to make the analogy there? (laughs) I I was... Yeah. So, I'd heard this and I was listening to NPR a couple months ago and they were... They had some authors of an article on talking about this Ohio class replacement sub, I guess it's called the Columbia class. And the mm-hmm. price, the price tag is going to, is going to be near $80 billion, I guess. And they expect this sub to be in operation for like 50 years till 2080 to go online in 2031 and to last until 2085. Uh, and the, the authors of this, this article, I, I can't remember their names, unfortunately, maybe someone out there, and the, the audience can help. But they, they made the point that, well, uh, when you make this sizable investment, <laughs> you have really no idea how long the, uh, how long these subs will uh, be in service. How long w- will they become obsolete uh, more quickly than you anticipated? And mm-hmm. I thought that has – it's interesting that that has uh, implications for a lot of different industries. And I was waiting for the right time. <laughs> to pull that anecdote. And I'm not sure this was the right time, but I wanted to use it before I forgot about it. But uh, yeah, I think it's 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 tough to be a macro level planner in a lot of different fields right now where technologies are changing quickly. And in baseball, where technologies are not just advancing quickly, but where the game has become so extreme so quickly. And it's, it's become even more extreme this year. And uh, I think None of us will ever forget where we were when Alex scored in that home run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I right. want to know, what I want to know is there was all this rapturous coverage of it when when it happened last night. Now I want to know, like, did there was a huge sports center package and stuff? And I want to know what did ESPN leave in the tank for when this record gets broken five times in the next seven years? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's gonna be broken with every subsequent home run hit this I guess season, that's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. easy to plan from now until the until <laughs> second week week of October. That's the A block just covered. <laughs> right. And I, I mean, I think the home run is here to stay. Like we since this century, I think we've had eight of the uh, top ten marks or this decade, I should say. And uh, people like home runs, fans like home runs. Players are bigger and stronger. Ballparks are smaller, so uh, yeah, home runs are going to be around. But is this dramatic? data point that is 2017 uh, an outlier in the the next 10 years is this the, just the beginning of a a new base uh, benchmark that's going to be exceeded like every year for the next forever how many years mm-hmm. uh, where are we i don't know and you know if we if we believe the ball is a big factor in this well baseball could decide to or rollins could decide to change the ball and it, it might not be until next july that ben and rob arthur have 
figured out what baseball's up to. So, yeah, as a planner, do you anticipate that this is going to continue? Do you worry about baseball changing seam heights on a ball? Do you worry about pitchers overwhelming uh, uh, hitters or finding out how to navigate around these new launch angles? Uh, Yeah, so I think there's all sorts of things to consider. And what fascinates me is just how the game has evolved so quickly, how different it is than it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think that's tough from the macro level seat in play. Yeah. Right. I mean, even going back to, you know, the very dawn of baseball, I mean, the long term trend over decades and a century plus is more home runs. It's just that that trend has really accelerated just in the last couple of years. And we've talked plenty about why that is. We had you and Rob Arthur on to talk about the so-called airball revolution. I don't know if there's exactly a consensus at this point, but I'm pretty convinced at least that it is a combination of changes in the baseball and changes in hitters approach kind of tailoring their swings to a game with a bouncier and lower seamed baseball. And there is some research at 538 from Rob Arthur just this week showing that that has continued to be the case, that the seam height has continued to be low and more consistently low than it has been at any point in the past that we've been able to track these things. So that doesn't seem to be changing. And Jeff Sullivan did some research to reveal the difference in launch angles and more batted balls being concentrated at higher launch angles, fewer at lower launch angles, et cetera. So it seems to be a combination of those things. But two years ago, or a little more than two years ago, we would never have guessed that we would be saying these things now in 2017 because it was a fairly low scoring era and fairly low or at least regular level of home runs. And so there's no way to project this would happen at that point. And so there's no real way to project exactly what will happen two years from now. But what do you see as the main effects as far as the impact on individual players and teams as a result of the high home run rate? Because you could make the case, well, it's just a high home run rate for everyone. Everyone is playing with the same ball, the same conditions. And so if something changes, it will affect everyone equally. But I think there are some nuances to that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And if I'm a pl- if I'm a player and I'm seeing a Francisco Lindor hit 30 home runs and uh, no one anticipated Francisco Lindor hitting, being a 30 home run guy. Yeah. Uh, back when or he was coming players to- who aren't even good hitting 30 <laughs> home runs also. Yeah. I, I, think, yeah. I think there's more players with 15 or more home runs than there are qualified hitters. So I think <laughs> we're going to see... <laughs> it's crazy. And we're going to see more hitters try to take advantage of this environment, this ball condition while it lasts. Uh, yeah, so there's going to be more incentive to get the ball in the air. And maybe we're just scratching the surface uh, just as uh, launch angles kind of become a, a, a hot catch word, catch phrase this year, uh, buzz term, whatever we want to call it. And we're going to see more players buy into that. I think, uh, I think from the team, from a team perspective, do you still want to find good hitters first contact I, and then hope power develops and you can, and they can just take advantage of this jet stream in the game? Or mm. do you want to go after guys who you think can uh, better elevate the ball, have higher exit velocities or more power, more uh, closer to the Aaron judge size on the spectrum than the Jose Altuve. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's, how do you devalue defense? Do you look at the three true outcomes and the power and like the Indians are experimenting with Jason Kipnis and center field right now, which is, Interesting for a team with 
uh, world title aspirations that you would use the center of a, the diamond position to experiment with defensively. But I think that speaks to trying to sneak offense into a lineup and just a few balls that are put in play. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of nuance. And I guess, you know, the rising power tide lifts all ships. But yeah, I think they're, uh, it, it's not quite as simple as just thinking it benefits everyone equally. I think it benefits others to a greater degree. Uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting. I don't have a good answer. I'm just interested in yeah. the topic. I wonder if it's I mean, it's definitely possible to overthink this though, just because just from a scouting perspective, no matter how baseball has changed over the past 120 years, the kind of player you want is always the sort of harder, better, faster, stronger. Like it's always going to be good to you know make more contact. It's always going to be good to throw harder. It's always good to throw a sharper breaking ball. So to a certain extent, that's not changing. But what is changing? is what you teach those guys in terms of swing path or maybe you know we've we've seen uh this the sinker is sort of going out of out of style and as a uh, fastball spin rate has become like the the hot buzzword and so pitchers are going up in the zone and trying to get swings and misses and pop at and, and pop outs instead of going down the zone to try to get um try to get ground balls so i wonder if like and this is to bring this back to the u.s navy shipbuilding metaphor like you know (laughs) we want you know we realize that having a blue water navy is not enough so we need to build a a brown water navy and a green water navy and, and have ships that can perform multiple missions and i wonder if the one thing that we're going to start to look for uh in players is adaptability the ability to because you don't know. I I wonder how you scout this, but it's probably easier to scout how teachable a player is or how intelligent a player is. And maybe it's not even intelligence. Maybe, you know, there are smart guys who are not coachable and there are dumb guys who are extremely coachable, but it's going to be easier to find the guy who can make those adjustments than to predict, well, what's going to be the next innovation and then find the guy who's going to make, you know, sort of not, not just predict the next innovation, but predict the guy who's suited to, to adjust to the new environment. Well, five years before he hits the major leagues. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And you look at guys like Justin Turner and uh, Daniel Murphy, who have been uh, out in front of the, the so-called airball revolution. And these were these were guys who were, I guess, motivated to make changes, but they're also curious, they were smart, and they were coachable, at, at least for private instructors who were looking for, for clients. And uh, yeah, they're evidence of... Uh, I don't know if we want to call them smart players or curious players or, or whatever, but they're evidence of players who can be adaptable, who can change, and while uh, stronger, faster is always better, you also want, I think, especially in this uh, data era where players have all sorts of new information available to them, you want players who can also use that information, make adjustments, and uh, look for every area in which to improve. So, yeah, adaptability is key, and yeah, to, to to tie it back into the naval aspect of all this. Uh, it's, yeah, what I would worry about as a team is if you overinvest in one aspect and you, uh, let's say you really believe in the air ball element and you teach all your guys to increase their launch angles and swing techniques. Uh, well, what if in two years, pitchers have really figured out how to sequence and pitch type and improve their skills to work around that? And then you've overinvested and made yourself vulnerable just as I think teams who maybe watched the, the Royals-Giants World Series and thought the way to 
in a lower run scoring environment, the way to succeed offensively was to have high contact, low power, slap the ball around the field kind of hitters. Well, uh, if you look at the the 10 teams who have the fewest home runs this year, there's only one team going to the playoffs. There's a bunch of last place, fourth place teams in that group. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think you want to diversify and adaptability is always good. Uh, but I, I don't, maybe you don't want to marry yourself to any one uh, or invest too deeply in any one aspect since we don't really know what the future holds. Yeah. And it's getting harder, it seems like, at least in some cases, to project players and therefore to pay players appropriately because you have a big gap in the home run rate going from even AAA to the majors. Minor league home run rates are up a bit relative to a few years ago, but not at a historic all-time high like the majors are. And so you're seeing guys who were not really big power hitters in the minors come up and be power hitters in the majors. And then we're seeing this democratization of home runs, this distribution of home runs where it's not so much guys hitting record setting numbers, even if Giancarlo Stanton is coming kind of close to doing that. But really, it's as we were saying, just a bunch of guys hitting 15 or 20 or 30, more so than what we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s when guys were hitting 60, 70. And so it's hard to project, like if a guy has decent power, well, in this home run environment, he can hit 30 homers or more. If the ball were to go back to what it was a few years ago, maybe that's not the case anymore because we know that there is a sweet spot when it comes to fly ball distance where when you hit it a certain distance, it is much more likely to become a home run just because of where outfield fences tend to be. And so if you were the type of guy who could only reach the warning track on a consistent basis before, maybe now you're reaching the first few rows of the stands more consistently. And if that doesn't continue to happen, then you're back to an environment where you really do need the Stantons and judges and guys like that who have really extraordinary power to put up those sorts of numbers. So it can affect if you're looking at a long-term deal for a guy, whether you want to pay for those skills that are of a particular value or not, depending on the scoring environment of the league. And it's really hard to tell what that will be going forward. Can baseball, can Rollins get together and just <laughs> tell teams how the ball's going to play for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, helpful. we don't know. You know, I tend to think that even though I do think the ball changed, I don't really think there was an intentional element to it and that there was some kind of plot or conspiracy. But now that there's been so much attention to this and so much scrutiny, Rob Manfred has even made comments to the effect of, well, maybe we'll go back and re examine our standards for baseballs, that kind of thing. So if now. Did he the say they're going to do that or did he say they're open to doing that? I think he, he didn't. Yeah, I think he said they would revisit it or think mm-hmm. about revisiting kind of vague language that he usually uses when he's talking about this stuff. But I wonder now if they were to go back and examine the materials and the construction process more closely and that led to a dip in home runs in a way that would be almost, you know, I think that might convince some people that they had something to do with this rise in home run rate to begin with. If we were suddenly to see another dip now that everyone is paying attention to this. Well, they're in a position right now. And really, Ben, you put Major League Baseball in this position that like they've got to act (laughs) like they've got to make a choice to act or not act about the baseball. There's a like Mm -hmm. a certain trolley problem element 
because now that they know that this is a perception, they're going to have to either choose to let it ride, which would be seen as endorsing this direction for baseball, or they're going to have to make an active change or change the standards or change the testing. So like they're going to have to get more hands on in this area one way or another. And even Mm -hmm. being hands off is a, a decision in and of itself. Yeah. This is all on you, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is that this uh, reminds me not only of nuclear submarines, but also of the strike zone discussion, as you mentioned in your piece, Travis, because that was something that we were all paying close attention to before the home run rate stuff started that we were able to detect because of pitch FX that there had been a big expansion, especially a downward expansion, expansion in the strike zone. And That seems to have slowed or stopped, although not really rolled back at this point. But that was always the question. If the home, if the strike zone reverts back to what it was a few years ago, then are certain types of hitters or pitchers going to benefit or be hurt disproportionately? Or if they were to suddenly implement a robot umps sort of automated strike zone, then what does that do to the value of a good framing catcher who maybe a team was paying for that sort of skill that is not valuable anymore? So that is also a consideration. I don't know that we've really been able to see any tangible effects of that because the strike zone is more or less what it was a couple of years ago now. But that is another thing that teams should or have to take into account. Yeah, and I was, before I was at Fangraphs, I was covering the Pirates in Pittsburgh, and uh, they had produced record ground ball rates. They, they were focused on the lower part of the strike zone with uh, their two-seam sinking fastballs. They were invested in, in pitch framers like Russell Martin and Cervelli. Uh, and they were doing this all at a period when the strike zone was expanding every year, particularly south of the lower part of the uh, deep marcation line every year, the pitch FX era, and then all of a sudden it starts shrinking. So if you started investing in this idea that, okay, the strike zone is here and it's growing, and then, it con- then it contracts, well, then a large part of your organizational philosophy and your uh, your acquisition strategies have been uh, not, not you know, they've, they've eroded in value. Mm-hmm. So uh, that an automated zone would help teams plan. They would know what the parameters of the game are. Whereas right now with the strike zone, with the ball, there is this uncertainty uh, going forward in planning. And uh, yeah, I think the strike zone is a good example of, uh, of what I was trying to articulate in the piece I, I wrote today. And it's just, it's tough to, uh, it's tough to know exactly where to go with some of these things. Mm-hmm. I also yeah. wonder about the, if they do automate the strike zone and catcher framing and receiving, and there's no umpire back there. Um, I wonder how teams are going to figure out how to circumvent the the rules on catcher positioning and like get the catcher into fair territory as soon as possible or something like that, or if they even bother to try, because somebody's going to if the catcher doesn't have to be physically squatting behind the plate. Yeah, unfortunately, there is that catcher's box that you have to stay in there. But yeah, I wonder, maybe like get a running start and just mm-hmm. like kneel behind the catcher's box and then sprint forward. I don't know. <laughs> that would be weird. But yeah, unfortunately, you can't just like pull the catcher and stick him in the field somewhere, although that would be entertaining. 
But yeah, I mean, I guess this has always been the case in baseball history. Conditions have always been changing somewhat unpredictably from year to year. So it's always something that teams have to take into account. It's just that these days we have the ability to detect and monitor these changes with greater precision. And you would think that would translate to being able to plan with greater precision, but not necessarily the case because these things do keep changing pretty unpredictably. So last year I did a an ALCS preview of how Cleveland and the Blue Jays had took different approaches to getting around the platoon advantage in Cleveland platooned heavily. They they almost never had left on left matchups. They had guys like Brandon Geyer who were extreme one side platoon players and they you know they played matchups just throughout the lineup whereas the blue jays were just as good in offense and their solution was to get nine really good right-handed hitters and just say screw it we're gonna you know we're just gonna blast through the the platoon advantage and there's probably like when it comes down to this the the team that you know, there, there are going to be gains to be had by predicting whatever the next innovation is, but the team that comes out on top over the next 10 years is going to be the team that drafts and develops the next superstar, the the kind of player who is impervious to to changes in the playing conditions. So, mm. you know, I to, to a certain extent, as much as we're stressing, you know, I don't want to undermine the thing that we've spent the past 25 minutes talking about it, you know, <laughs> uh, but like to a certain extent, these are all sort of marginal advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. Just get Mike Trout. He's good no matter what the home run rate yeah, or strike I mean, zone is. Like, not that 30 major league GMs <laughs> haven't thought of that, but yeah, it's, it, it really is that simple, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts about nuclear submarines from anyone? Run I wonder silent, who did. No, I'm okay. I'm, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> I had right. an extended joke about the cancellation of the Seawolf class, and it's just not worth it. Okay, just workshop I that on Twitter, that. maybe. I want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You can find Travis writing all the time at Fangrass. He is on Twitter at Travis underscore Sachik. Travis, thanks as always for coming on. Thanks, fellas. All right. So that will do it for this episode. One quick follow up on something we talked about in the intro. I dispensed my fun fact about Carlos Ramirez, who had pitched 47 and two thirds innings with a zero ERA. I was really happy that I got that one out while he still had a zero ERA. I wasn't quite quick enough. In the time between that conversation and when this is being posted, Carlos Ramirez pitched one more inning. He allowed four earned runs on two home runs, naturally. One by Whit Merrifield, one by Mike Moustakis. So that dovetails with our second segment. But Carlos Ramirez now has a 3.27 ERA in 11 major league innings. And that's how quickly a fun fact in a scoreless season can fall apart. I know that you also have a submarine fun fact for us. Yeah, uh, we were just talking about what the longest serving submarine in the U.S. Navy is right now. I be- The longest serving missile submarine is the USS Ohio, which was commissioned in 1981. I believe the longest serving uh, submarine of any type or nuclear submarine. And, you know, if there's some research bathyscape or something that that has been around since the 1960s feel free not to at me about this but i believe the the los angeles class uss bremerton has been around Mm. has been uh both of those submarines were built in uh the mid-70s and commissioned in 1981 um 
but the Bremerton has uh, has been in service for another couple months. Uh, Michael Brantley, who is uh, who has been apparently cleared for sea based running, uh, has only been uh, around since 1987. So once the Bremerton, the right. Ohio, and a couple other ships have been decommissioned, he will be the oldest submarine in the U.S. Navy. <laughs> I really miss my calling in the silent service. I think it's perfect for me. It's you don't need daylight, right? I don't mm-hmm. need daylight. I don't you see just the, stand the light around of day. in the dark and look at a computer monitor. Like exactly, <laughs> right? You don't sleep if you're you're hot bunking constantly. Your your schedule is all screwed up because you're awake in the middle of the night sometimes, and you're all over the clock. I could have handled that perfectly. It's nice and cool down there. Uh-huh. I, I think I really would have liked it. I have a a plaque somewhere. That designates me a like a junior submarine man or something from when I presented at the <laughs> at a CUNY school in in sixth grade on a nuclear submarine wow. and how to design a, a nuclear submarine propulsion system or something. Those were the days. I, I really, I really could have gone down that yeah, route instead all those, of doing baseball. All those things appeal to me too, except that's a lot of men in a very small place, and like <laughs> I get true. not a lot of privacy. I get really touchy if I'm around people for for too long. So that's that would <laughs> that be like true. if if you had like if if I could have my own room on a submarine, I could probably handle mm. it. But otherwise, yeah, can't work from home. That would be a sticking well, point. Oh, you for live me. on the boat. You technically, <laughs> you know, your, your home is, it, you know, a nuclear powered uh, yes, you know, right. pipe in the middle of the water. Well, we'd miss our pets and our significant I wouldn't others. miss my pets. My pets would drive <laughs> me up the wall. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to the Ringer MLB show slash submarine podcast, da, 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 part da, of the Ringer da, Podcast da, Network. Da, we will be back da, da, on Monday. Da, da, 